Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, the interpretation of environmental, social and governance factors, ESG, is the topic du jour for our industry at the moment. How do these somewhat detached factors feed into investment processes? Are they explicit or implicit? Are they central to the process or do they bolt on? Where does ESG stop and impact investing start? Well, if you're interested in this rather foggy world, I think you're going to enjoy this episode with my guest, Dominic Scriven. Dominic is the founder and chairman of Dragon Capital. Established in 1994, Dragon Capital is an investment manager based in Vietnam, running around 4 billion US dollars in assets. In addition to being chairman of Dragon, Dominic is a rock star in the biodiversity space and has a medley of other interests from Vietnamese art and history to the elimination of the illegal wildlife trade. It was a brilliant discussion with Dominic and I thoroughly enjoyed recording it. In fact, when I first asked him to be on the podcast, I wanted to discuss the application of ESG in frontier markets, many of which, in my mind, are on the front line of the world's potential ecological disasters. This episode is, in fact, a surgical picking apart of the concept of ESG factors, which frankly, as we discuss, might not belong together in the first place. I enjoyed it so much, in fact, we couldn't squeeze it into one episode. So this is the first in a two-part episode. Dominic is an impressive individual. Dragon Capital is an impressive organisation. And I hope you're impressed by the conversation. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Dominic Scriven, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, Doug. Is that what it's called? The podcast? It is called The Podcast and, and Welcome. Well, it's actually called Why Invest Podcast, but who's counting? Um, Dom, how did you start your career? And how and, and when did you start Dragon Capital? Well, I started my career in the 80s. That's of the previous century. When getting a job, I imagine, was a little bit easier than getting a job today. I happened to find a job at M&G in London. M&G, of course, is now a large, large organization. Its claim to fame was um, starting the first British investment trust in 1932, but that was a long time ago. Anyway, I fired off there and I uh, then moved to Hong Kong and worked with a broker called Vickers. And then I worked with a Chinese fund management company called Sunung Kai. And that took me to Vietnam. And so I would really say my arrow hit the target when I arrived in Vietnam, I think. And you arrived where, Doug? Was that in, in Hanoi or, or Ho Chi Minh, Saigon? I went to Hanoi University. Actually, I wrote a letter. My job in Hong Kong was what was called uh, newly industrialized economies and newly industrialized countries, and include, you know, everywhere from Korea broadly through to Sri Lanka, including Vietnam and Myanmar. And I wanted to go and learn a language. I wrote a letter the same day to um, Hanoi University and Yangon University. But of course, Yangon University was closed down. So the letter, I don't suppose, got through. But I did get a response from Hanoi University. And that's why I ended up there. And that was just as well, actually, because what I really wanted to do was learn a tonal language, or rather an ideographic language. And Vietnamese is remarkable, because it's an ideographic language. What does ideographic mean? Well, think characters. The meaning of a word comes from a picture, not from a sound. Whereas in our language, 
the meaning of a word comes from a sound. It's for phonetic languages. They're completely different ways of thinking. The great thing about Vietnam is, is that it's an ideographic language and therefore tonal, but uses the Roman alphabet. I mean, you could search all over the universe and you wouldn't get such a happy confluence as that. So I was very happy learning Vietnamese in Hanoi, Hanoi University for a couple of years, 1992 and 1993. And then when my teacher, who was a wonderful fellow, an expert in a Lao linguist, he was a PhD in linguistics with a focus on Laotian and didn't have any English at all. So, and I was his only pupil and he was my only teacher. So for two years, we went from, I had a little bit of Thai and Thai, of course, is close to Lao. So, you know, when we were really stumped, we tried hypothecating through the Mekong. But generally speaking, I had to learn Vietnamese, which was brilliant. But one day he came in um, bringing the um, weighty tome, Vietnamese Social Sciences, an academic review publication. And I, I realized my formal education was coming to an end. Have you read it subsequently? It's still going. So, you know, you do occasionally see it, loyally supported by its two readers. And also I, I had sort of, you know, I could speak Vietnamese to a fashion and I was running a bit low on funds. And so I got a job for a short period of time with the Vietnamese subsidiary of Peregrine, which anybody who knows Asia from, well, I suppose it's the last century, isn't it? Might be aware of Peregrine, which was a starburst explosion of this very successful investment banking business model that then collapsed in flames in the Asian crisis. However, long, long before that happened, luckily, my fingerprints are not on that. The business model they were pursuing in Vietnam wasn't, wasn't a really good one. So I left with um, a few of my mates and we started Dragon in 1994. And we thought that there'd be a stock market in 1996. So we set about raising a modest fund in 1995 in the expectation that we'd all be retired by 1997 which of course didn't happen because that was the Asian crisis. And um, we had some bleak years. Did Vietnam get caught up in the Asian financial crisis? Wasn't it somewhat protected? Well, it didn't have a market. And so the government looked at one look at what was going around Asia and went, I don't think we want any of that. So they postponed the establishment of their stock market, which is what I suppose understandable. But then, no, they couldn't escape the ravages of the Asian crisis, the, the worst ones they did. But, you know, the currency lost 25% and we were making private investments, but some of them got into severe distress. So our initial net asset value of a dollar, loyally subscribed by my mother, my father, my sister, and my brother-in-law, dropped precipitously to 60. And so there was a, a few grim Christmases until 2000 when the country opened its stock market and we owned both of the two first listings. Of course, there's been many challenges since then and there will continue to be many challenges. We're right in the middle of a big fat challenge right now. But broadly speaking, it's been a great journey. Yeah, it's been a great journey. Well, Dominic, we are going to focus this discussion on uh, ESG investing and specifically how you apply ESG factors um, when investing in frontier markets like Vietnam. So let's think about your investment process at Dragon. How are ESG factors woven in 
to said process. Well, I'm delighted to talk about this subject, but I'm also a little apprehensive because it is a monstrously large subject. And the more one gets into ESG, the more complex and quicksand-like the whole thing becomes. We're going to go for four hours, I think. (laughs) But um, I suppose the summary would be this, that ESG, like anything, it's a journey. Don't have ESG and suddenly have ESG. It's a journey. You get on the journey and you, you move up it. And I'd identify three parts to the journey. The first part is compliance. And then there's risk management. And then there's business opportunities. So everybody starts at compliance because compliance is the way in which structures are created, processes created, and awareness is raised. And I think the awareness is absolutely key because ESG really is a matter of culture. And therefore, it has to be deep inside a process. And that means deep inside a culture. And really, there's no easy alternative for a subject, particularly like ESG, other than starting with compliance. Because compliance is rules, and rules are tiresome, very difficult and costly and confusing. Yes, indeed. I think it's really important to get through that compliance process as quickly as possible and latch on to risk management, which is intellectually a great deal more interesting and fundamentally much more critical to a well-developed investment process and good investment outcomes. We'll just hold fire there. What, what do you mean by risk management? Okay, I can give you an example of this. So at the compliance level, most people these days will have a box and it goes, does this company mine, transport, or use coal? And if there's a tick in that box, then you know that presents a problem for that investment. That's compliance. The risk management approach is to go, okay, what are we talking about here? We're talking about coal. We're talking about climate change. What's the actual risk of climate change in our country and our portfolio? And of course, there are different kinds of risk. There's the risk of the sky falling on your head or the, the waters rising around your neck, which they call physical risk. Or there's the risk of transition, as it's called, i.e. the imposition of a carbon tax. Those sort of issues take you into concentration around geographies or around sectors and clusters and supply chains. And you get much more into a, an interactive process. And that really, to me, is the core of ESG, actually. It is identifying the risks that stem from a particular approach to investing. And then, of course, if, one, you know, if one's lucky, I think at, at the other end, one's got knowledge and, and insights, and there ought to be business opportunities, which is a rewarding angle on ESG. So investing in, for example, I mean, uh, renewable energy, I mean, Dragon uh, invest in renewable energy. That's one. We invest in climate tech. That's another. These are business opportunities. So it's a journey. And I, and, I, and I think the problem for many of us is we get stuck at the compliance level. And the compliance level is a dreary place to be stuck. Sorry, for I, I don't mean to headbutt the concept of compliance. It's very necessary. But there's a reason that rules are put in place. Well, okay. Do you think, is there a swashbuckling Anglo-Saxon 
angle versus a sort of continental European Gaulic box ticking angle that is kind of crashing against each other. Because I think on compliance, there are some investors who, who mainly sit in Europe who actually are very pro and drive through a lot of the, the sort of compliance part of ESG. And then I find, and I don't know if you agree with this, Dominic, but there's a sort of Anglo-Saxon element of sort of interpretation, which I suppose speaks to your sort of risk management element, where ESG is implicit in people's investment process. It has to be implicit in people's investment process. And, you know, if you're not finding companies that comply, you probably will end up with worse returns. That's an interesting observation, Doug. I mean, you're drawing heavily on the fundamental basis of each of the legal systems, aren't you? Um, Napoleonic codified statute-based law in Europe. Exactly. And the common law in this country. I believe you know a bit about law. Yeah, I'm not really qualified to opine on that, actually. But I think there's a difference between quantitative approaches and qualitative approaches, maybe. And maybe that's how I'd approach that. But of course, you can't really be credible in a qualitative approach without being able to demonstrate a good grasp of the quantitative aspects. Can you really? So Mm -hmm. to me, maybe is it Anglo-Saxon approach? I don't know. But to me, one ought to be able to smell the ESG risks of a company before completing lengthy questionnaire. So what would be an example of that? How would you smell ESG risks? Well, there are certain areas. I mean, if we're talking about frontier markets, there are certain areas that you just know. Um, Agro industry, for example. It's all very well to say this from a nicely field, meadow-dotted Britain, (laughs) where all the uh, forest was chewed up long ago. But be that as it may... In frontier markets right now, one of the key drivers is the destruction of natural habitat for food production and other commodities that serve the needs of the rest of the world. It's a sector where dragon has gone wrong in the past, so that's why I know it. But you can smell agro-industry. You know there's going to be issues there. You don't need a questionnaire. I think that's on the environmental side. Governance, family businesses, conglomerates. You know, you can just smell that there are certain things you're going to need to look at in order to get comfortable. And then, of course, there's the obvious ones, you know, anything to do with hydrocarbons, what's one's position on that? So would you, for example, at Dragon Capital, take an ethical stance and screen out certain industries or sub-industry groups because they operate in a certain sector? Rubber plantations, for example. Yeah, the buzzword is integration. So, for example, you know, Dragon would never launch an ESG product, right? Because everything we do is ESG aware. ESG is integrated throughout our investment process. So the very notion that people are are launching ESG products means that their other products are not ESG. That's what I mean by integration. So what does that mean? We start with an exclusion list and then we screen companies. And then we score them. And then we score portfolios. We engage and we measure and we report, I suppose. And we advocate. Ah, advocate, advocate. Let's just hold on advocate. 
if you do advocate and if you are kind of being part of the change as investment managers, by not advocating and not being part of that change in companies that you've screened out for whatever reason, are you, you know, failing society in inverted commas because you're taking the absentees route in terms of not being part of the change? You know, it's better to be owning a company like Shell, let's say, and putting pressure on them to invest in a greener future and divest from their fossil fuels rather than just putting your head in the sand. Well, that's an interesting question, and there are different views on it. The view that you've expressed, Doug, is very much the view that is held in what I call uh, civil society and the NGO community. And their view is that if you're involved in a business that's got issues, you need to stay there and help resolve them. The reality is that if you're in a business and a problem has emerged, it's sort of too late. It's too late and you can't really put things right. I suppose I'm talking about sort of certain aspects of ESG. But let me take that another way. We are proponents of good governance, for example. And all of that stands. So what do we do there? Well, we introduced a public company awards, which we stand behind that, which every year reads annual reports and produces a set of rewards and and tries to raise the bar every year for public companies. We're a founder member of the Institute of Governance, which, amongst other things, trains independent directors or trains non-executive directors or independent directors. You know, we are quite active in issues of market development, governance, institutionalization, that sort of thing with the government. So those are what I'd say, just some examples of advocacy, and that is engagement. If at the same time you're screening out companies that have a really bad track record on governance, I don't think that's having one's head in the sand. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Dominic Scriven, Chairman of Dragon Capital. Now, as I said at the beginning, this was the first in a two-parter, so stay tuned for the second part of the same interview. Um, If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us and subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend and colleague. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.